This is The Guardian. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. The record for the largest known plant on Earth was recently broken by a seagrass, roughly three times the size of Manhattan, discovered off the coast of Australia. Seagrasses are the only flowering plants that can live in seawater and pollinate when submerged. They often grow in groups, creating underwater meadows that look a lot like terrestrial grasslands. Studies suggest that seagrass is one of the most effective carbon sinks. They can also support an incredible amount of biodiversity. On the UK coastlines, that means anemones, sea squirts, crabs, sea snails, cuttlefish, and even seahorses. They're also among the most threatened ecosystems on the planet. The UK only has a tiny fraction of its original seagrass meadows left. So now efforts are growing to bring them back. But is it actually possible to turn mudflats into thriving seagrass meadows again? And could they really be the carbon stores we so desperately need? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. On a gloriously sunny, but being England, still rather windy afternoon last week, the Guardian finally let me out of the studio. Sadly not to sunbathe. Instead, I headed down to the Solent, a strait of the English Channel, to meet Dr Tim Ferrero, a marine biologist and seagrass specialist at the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust. Good to meet you. Sorry, I'm... I'm... <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. You've come prepared, much more prepared than me. <laughs> Sun cream applied and bottles full of water, we walked along the seawall by Farlington Marshes, with some very hot-looking cows peering over at us. Eventually, we headed down onto the other side, onto the mudflats in low tide, 
and trudged our way towards an established seagrass meadow. There are human impacts out here, but the basic salt marsh and the seaweed and the seagrass is, you know, as, as primordial as you like. It's, it's something that's been here for thousands of years. And Tim, you're part of a project trying to rewild a lot of the Solent where we are with seagrass. Looking over these meadows now, how does it make you feel to see these kinds of expanses of green? <laughs> it's lovely to see this this large expanse, but at the same time I'm reminded that this is actually almost like a relic of the amount of seagrass that we used to have in the Solent, around the UK and, and in fact in the North Atlantic. How much seagrass across the UK coasts have we lost and when did we lose it? It's very difficult to be precise. Certainly we know that in the 20s, almost 100 years ago now, there was a wasting disease which tore through all of the eelgrass in the North Atlantic and wiped out, we think, over 95% of all the seagrass meadows. We believe there was some recovery, but that was moving into a time, 50s, 60s, 70s, which weren't great for marine pollution, so human impacts were increasing. Another disease outbreak in the 80s and this time that the sort of the pathogen was identified it's a slime mold called labyrinthula zosteri i like that the slime mold has a suitably villainous name well yes the the (laughs) labyrinthine and that's because the way it grows through the cells of the leaf sort of a bit like it weaves its way through the labyrinth of the spaces and cells in the leaves so you can see it on a big seagrass leaf very clearly the way it works but there are other pressures as well. You know, the water quality causes things like the algal growth. And then there are physical pressures as well. So certain types of fishing gear, like bottom-toed gear, trawls and dredges, can be very damaging for seagrass. They, they, they actually tear up the root mat, and that is the most vulnerable part of a seagrass meadow, which can take a long time to recover. Globally, seagrass is shrinking by 7% each year, which is about the equivalent of a football pitch vanishing every 30 minutes. With such huge swathes being lost, rewilding attempts may seem like trying to bail out the Titanic with a bucket. But the climate crisis is providing plenty of reasons to try. Seagrasses can be a good coastal defence, reducing the speed and force of incoming waves, and of course, they are fantastic carbon sinks. Not only is it a growing plant, so there's a certain amount of carbon captured in the leaves and down into the roots, the real store of carbon is actually in in the mud and sand below the seagrass meadow. So what happens is when the water flows through a seagrass meadow, through all of those blades of seagrass, it slows down and lots of particles suspended in the water drop down onto the seabed and they're often rich in carbon and they get buried and in a muddy environment like this where you can see some of the mud is quite dark black colour so that's a lack of oxygen it's it's anoxic and carbon material in low oxygen gets preserved same as peat bog man for our, our species of seagrass the carbon capture can be a bit variable depends on the type of of sediment what we do know is you know globally we've got maybe 0.1 0.2 percent of the seabed covered in seagrass and that is covering 10 to 15 percent 
of the global carbon storage budget. Right now, while the tide is out, the grass, it does look like grass, but it's flat against the mud. And you wouldn't necessarily think of it as a meadow or even an ecosystem. Seagrass when the tide is out is an acquired taste. You, know, <laughs> you can see it and the nice thing is you don't need to be diving, you can actually walk out and look at it. These leaves are fairly buoyant so when the water comes in, like all the seaweeds as well, everything stands up and then it's much easier to see that you've got a, a really sort of vibrant meadow here and a real sort of promoter of what we call ecosystem services shelter areas and refuge foraging areas so there are so many species like that you know species like cod spider crab the cuttlefish for example out in the solent visiting the solent at the moment to lay their eggs on the seagrass it's a vital supporting habitat for another fantastic species in itself and, and a commercially important species as well you know we've got this gorgeous sun raining down on us that's kind of making the whole landscape glitter but as you look closely you can see all that movement and lots going on on the surface yes yeah, yeah even at low water you can see a lot going on it's a good time you know the trails behind the snails you can actually see where they've gone or the worms come out on the surface and you may occasionally see a little squirt for example from a burrowing worm or a burrowing um <laughs> uh, shell squirting a bit of water out there's a little crab wandering about over there so yeah, the absolute wildlife paradise is a mudflat like this. It's a strange kind of paradise, isn't it? But I do feel a bit like I'm standing on paradise. Yeah. A, a different bit, world, a, certainly. Like it is a different world. So Tim, let's go and have a look at the site that you're trying to rewild. I'm really curious to see what it's going to look like in comparison to this seagrass meadow. Okay, we'll have to have a bit of a change of change of footwear. For okay. That. When Tim says change of footwear, what he actually had in store for me were mud patterns. I would recommend you Google them, but to paint a picture, I had to strap on planks of wood to my boots with thin pieces of rope. These attached, we unsteadily walked towards canes sticking out the mud in the distance, which were marking out the rewilding areas. And I can't say it was the easiest thing to do. Oh gosh, this is the easy bit. This is the very easy bit. <laughs> Not sure how I'm going to fare in the, the harder bit. Right, I'm going to just let myself sink a little bit. There we go. Okay, Tim, it looks like we've made it over to the first cane, and now instead of the kind of green landscape that we were looking at before it's much browner yes. so this is the site which we're trying to rewild with seagrass so tell me about the project how did it start and what have you been doing so i guess we, we started working on this really almost at the beginning of lockdown because for, for many years hampshire and isle of wight wildlife trust we've surveyed the seagrass meadows and we thought we'd be quite well placed to actually do that sort of work so over the last year and a bit we visited some sites we learned how to recognize the flowers what stage they were at and then in sort of the, the end of the summer end of august september even into october we that's when we actually collected seagrass seeds and, and to do that involved walking out 
onto mud like this with your mud patterns on and a bodyboard lying on the board and picking through the seagrass to find the flowering shoots. They're called spathes. That then went to our partners at the University of Portsmouth. The spathes then have to be rotted down. They actually call it the process rotting out. And then pack them up into our, our seed pods, these little hessian bag pouches, brought them out here in December and on December the 1st we were out here last year planting our seed pods. We, we put a number of seeds into each pod to try and guarantee one seedling per pod. So it's a complex and labour-intensive process, not least motivating volunteers to go out on bodyboards in the mud in December at 5am to bury the Hessian bags. But there is a lot of enthusiasm for it. Projects like this are happening around the UK's coastline, in Scotland, Wales and England. The problem is, getting the seeds into the ground is just the start. The survival rate of seagrass seeds sits at about 10%, and restoration efforts have had less success compared with mangroves and salt marshes. But these kinds of projects are just in their infancy, still figuring out what works and what doesn't. Going out since, have you spotted any seagrass starting to grow? We've been to our site on the Isle of Wight at Seaview and we've seen some seedlings there and we've managed to feel down with our fingers. It's a sort of a sandier site and we can feel the hessian bag down in the sand. So we absolutely know we've had some germination and some seedlings growing. What we've got here, as you can see before you, is, you know, we've got our site laid out, but it has this covering of algae at the moment. So we're really sort of on tenterhooks because we're kind of going to have to wait till this algal bloom dies down. It, it will be lovely if it's successful. It might not be. And, and we always have to remember that we're not dealing with tree planting. It's a much less understood process. It's a much earlier stage. It's exciting, but it's also quite nerve-wracking to, to visit a site like this. It's only the second time we've visited this one. What are you hoping will happen next? Well, I guess if, if we can get a network of seedlings across the plot, if they grow on, their root mats would start to grow out, their roots would spread. Hopefully over, over a year or two, those root mats would join up and then we've got the beginnings of a proper seagrass meadow. So it's a, it's a slow process. If that's less successful, then we have to consider a number of things. One, we have to consider our methods. And there are other ways that we could potentially get the seed into the ground. You could sort of maybe inject them into the mud. There are other things that we can look at as well. So that there is a possibility of, should, could we grow seedlings in a lab or a nursery, for example, we have to be open to changing our methods. We have to be open to learning and, and finding out what works best. You've talked about how many seeds we might see actually taking from all those hessian bags that you've planted into these mudflats and some of the challenges as well, whether it's the weather or the algae. I mean, is this potentially a fool's errand? The aspiration is to get the seagrass back to where it was a hundred years ago. I mean, it seems like it's going to be a huge challenge. 
I think there's there's no doubt that it is a tremendous challenge and it, it takes uh, a lot of willpower, a lot of support, a lot of enthusiasm, uh, even to, to start actually, you know, but and to keep going. Is it a fool's errand? Well, I mean, we don't know. <laughs> you never know, do you, if you're on a fool's errand until it, it suddenly becomes obvious. I don't think it is, though, because there are many things around the restoration work that raising of public awareness the other work we're doing to try and actually improve the marine environment to make it a better place for seagrass to grow all of those have a positive impact so it's all pushing in the right direction what we ultimately want is, is more seagrass and, and a better wilder marine environment because they are incredibly diverse and, and visually striking they're every bit as good as, as, as a wildflower meadow and a forest. Tim, thank you so much. We try and slowly make our way back yeah, to the go. shoreline now. Let's go for it. Thanks again to Dr Tim Ferrero and the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust. This episode has been part of a special series from The Guardian, Wild World, taking a look at rewilding efforts around the globe from beavers to bogs. You'll find links on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. This episode was produced by me, Madeleine Finley. The sound design was by Solomon King and the executive producer was Lorna Stewart. Ian Sample will be back on Thursday with another Wild World special. He's speaking to Phoebe Weston about reintroducing wolves to struggling ecosystems. It's not one to miss. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.